If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 684. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but purchase one or 20 classes there. You keep this podcast free of charge. If you're at YouTube watching the video, click on that little super thanks button under the video. You can throw a few pennies my way. Also, click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way that way there. Or you can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com and buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can also support the show at Anchor.fm. You can also go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. I do want to hear or read what you want to hear. And this is, uh, I think, uh, an interesting topic to uh, finish up the week here. And I'm going to read a piece that appeared in Chronicles magazine. If you don't get Chronicles, you should. Um, I'll be focusing on Claremont next week in a piece at the New York Times. I wanted to cover that. It might take me two days to get through some of the stuff in that piece, so I didn't want to finish up the week with that, but I wanted to kick off next week. We're going to do that. But just to give you a contrast, if you want to read a real conservative publication, go out and get Chronicles. Now, uh, the Claremont Institute, of course, has got a lot of traction right now, and they're publishing, I think, two or three web, uh, web-based web magazines now. I mean, they're doing a lot of stuff, and of course, they're getting a lot of interest from the left. But Chronicles has always been there, and Chronicles has always been the real conservative magazine in America since Tom Fleming was editing, it, editing the magazine for a couple of decades. I mean, it really has been the quintessential conservative magazine. And of course, it's not going to be in lockstep with the Claremont Institute because it doesn't see Abraham Lincoln as being a saint or an American demigod. It's not a West Coast Straussian Jaffaite publication. Uh, some of the people that, uh, of course, write for Chronicles have, uh, are, are at least accepted by the Claremont people in some ways. And not everything Claremont says is wrong. It's just their intellectual. If you're if you're going to base your position from Abraham Lincoln, you're already doomed to fail. And I'll talk about that next week again. But I want to talk about this piece in Chronicles by Bill Watkins. Bill Watkins is a great legal scholar, without question. Uh, he is um, someone you should read. Uh, he is uh, very good on the 14th Amendment, very good on originalism. And uh, he's at the Independent Institute, I believe, now. And he's just a really good guy and, of course, a great scholar. And he published this piece in Chronicles on August 1st. And so I want to read it. I want to go through it because, I mean, great minds think alike. This is the, some of the exact same things I've said about the recent Dobbs decision and Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. That's the most important part of the Dobbs decision, not the Dobbs decision itself, which everyone's going to focus on. Because the Dobbs decision, even in my mind, except for Thomas's concurring opinion, was argued incorrectly. The entire position should have been Thomas's concurring position or concurring opinion, not 
what uh, Alito wrote. So, and, and Watkins essentially agrees, right? I mean, this this is what his his point is. Uh, that the Dobbs decision is argued like a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of uh, you know justices who have their pet projects, but Thomas would have bulldozed the entire thing, which would have been hilarious, right? And it would have been hilarious, would have been ground and earth earth shaking, ground you know ground shaking, earth shattering uh, decision if Thomas had actually written the majority, because it would have upended everything. You would have oh, he would have opened the door to just about anything you want when it comes to undoing the leftist agenda in America. And that's what people are afraid of. And right, look, the leftists should be afraid of this because their entire position, their entire structure of society is based on a, on a house of cards, right? It's, it's based on judicial opinions. This is the common law tradition. You, you have an unwritten constitution through court decisions. And what Thomas is doing is saying, that's the exact wrong way of looking at the United States Constitution. That's not how we should interpret the Constitution. That's not how we should interpret American law. We have a written document. Essentially, that's what he's doing, right? We have a written Constitution in contrast to an unwritten Constitution, which all of these politically elected lawyers, politically appointed lawyers have done, right? So that is the point. And I think that's where Thomas and his concurring opinion is so good and where Watkins brings that out. So let's get into this piece. It's just a lot of fun. The Supreme Court and the Due Process Clause is the title of the piece. Again, Chronicles Magazine. And he said uh, the subtitle is, Why Justice Thomas's Dobbs Concurrence Sent Shockwaves Through the Left. Uh, Caterwauling and gnashing of teeth, that was the general reaction of the left to the decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Dobbs, of course, held that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment does not protect a right to abortion. Writing for The Guardian, Jill Filipovic protested that the court has just signaled its illegitimacy and thrown the American project into question. The court has just signaled its illegitimacy. Now, it's fascinating to me to watch the left turn on the court because the courts have been their way to get what they want for the last half century or more. It's exactly what happened here. I mean, this is why they're so upset about it because they thought the courts were theirs. They thought that anything conservatives would do would go before the court and it would get it, it would get undone, right? So they believe the courts were in their back pocket. And what the Republicans have done, and this is basically Mitch McConnell, right? So if you want to, Mitch McConnell has his own problems, but Mitch McConnell recognized how important the federal courts had come to the left. And if he did, if he did nothing else in the Senate, the way that he's controlled the ability for Republicans to put as many people as they want on these federal courts has been the greatest achievement of the McConnell regime in the Senate. The Republicans have stacked the courts. Now, they haven't packed the courts. They've stacked the courts. <laughs> there's, a whole, there's a whole different thing. These are They didn't create any new positions. You just had a whole bunch of lefties retiring, and Republicans were able, in the four short years that Trump was in office, to stack the courts. They put a lot of people on the bench. My hope is, and this is where, again, Claremont can be an issue, right? My hope is these people would be more originalist than anything else and that they would really follow the original Constitution I'll, you know, in, in the line of Clarence Thomas rather than uh, you know some milquetoast uh, conservative who isn't really going to do much like a John Roberts. So this is Mitch McConnell's greatest achievement in the United States Senate in that four years was making sure Republicans could stack the federal courts. Now, it doesn't mean Democrats aren't going to get appointments. They are, and they, they have been. But 
Uh, the the uh, Republicans have done a fantastic job to do this, and it's driving the left bonkers because, again, this was supposed to be their thing. Their last bulwark against a conservative takeover of the general government is the bureaucracy in the deep state. That's their plaything, too. I've talked about this. That's their sandbox. If they lose that, and this was the whole idea of Trump making all these people Schedule F. This is bring back the spoil system. I've talked about it. If they do that, if they lose that, they're done. Because the only way they've been able to get their agenda through the American population has been basically through extra legal means, whether it's through the bureaucracy or whether it's through the court system where um, they're, not, they're, they're legislating from the bench. right? So these are, these are big issues. Jamie Harrison, chair of the Democratic National Committee, tweeted a call to arms, quote, So with everything we got and all that we are, each of us must end this tyranny on our rights. It's funny. So, with everything we got and all we are, so. Uh, this is hilarious how we've gotten to a point where that everyone starts with the word so. So, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Valley Girl, right? So, I was thinking... So, with everything we are and all we got, uh, we need to end this tyranny on our rights. Uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. But this is how people speak nowadays. What really frightened the leftist legal establishment, however, is not the decision in Dobbs, but a concurring opinion from Justice Clarence Thomas, recommending that, quote, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Augerfell. These are cases that respectively protect the right to use contraceptives, to have homosexual activity and homosexual marriages. Writing for Time, Madeline Carlyle and Julia Zorthian, Zorthian I'm sorry, described Thomas's statement as a seismic departure from how the Supreme Court has historically approached the right to due process. That's a very interesting statement because it's not really a seismic departure. It's only a a departure from the way the court has interpreted due process in, say, the last half century, but not before that. There was one instance before that, and this is something that and I, I, it's hilarious to me. The left loves to bash the Dred Scott decision. You know what they use in the Dred Scott decision? Substantive to due process, right? So here is a decision that's universally reviled, called one of the worst decisions in the history of the Supreme Court, and it uses the same legal reasoning that uh, was used in Griswold, Lawrence, Obgerfell, and of course also Roe v. Wade. Same exact legal reasoning. One is horrible. Oh, also Brown v. Board of Education too. I mean, essentially this is what, what's being done. All of these civil rights cases essentially use the idea of substantive due process. Uh, and this was pointed out with, with Thomas as well. I mean, the, the, the idea of uh, that states can't regulate marriage in any way, or states can regulate marriage. I mean, that comes down to a substantive due process issue. But what, what we're looking at here is all of these civil rights cases have been based on substantive due process, but it's only been in the last half century or so, a little longer if you go back to Brown v. Board of Education. But the one case is horrible because it uses substantive due process, but all these other ones are good because it uses substantive due process. You, you, it's inconsistent. You can't get around the inconsistency. Yale's Catherine L. Crashill called Thomas's concurrence an ominous preview of how far the Supreme Court may go to undermine existing constitutionally protected rights. But they're not really constitutionally protected rights. They're legally protected rights. Not constitutionally. There's a whole difference. They're legally protected rights based on court decisions. We, can't, we got to get the language right. 
These are legally protected rights, not constitutionally protected rights. So you could say that they're being done through the legal system, but not really through the Constitution. So I like this next part of it because I think uh, Watkins does a great job here giving a little lesson, a little teaching uh, exercise in what these things are. Most Americans do not know what substantive due process is. At base, it is a doctrine originating in the latter 1800s, allowing courts to import alien concepts into the Constitution and thus to strike state laws as unfair or arbitrary. This is the point, right? It's going after state laws. State laws, not typically federal laws, but state laws. In 1787, John Rutledge of South Carolina said a, a federal negative of state law ought to damn the Constitution. In fact, if anyone had... Look, Pickens, who was his fellow South Carolinian, proposed this, right? To have a federal negative of state law. It failed. And to a man, uh, you would find that across the United States, nobody really wanted to have a federal veto of state law. It would have, it would have damned the Constitution, as Rutledge said. So what we have now, though, and basically in the last 100 years or so, as, as Watkins points out, but really in the last 50 to 60, is a federal negative of state law. And this is, that, this is what the issue is with substantive due process. The Dobbs majority did not challenge substantive due process, but instead simply followed a judge-crafted test to determine whether abortion was deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, such that it deserves special due process protection. Thomas, on the other hand, declared substantive due process to be an oxymoron that lacks any basis in the Constitution. Excellent. This is true. Had Thomas's druthers, he would have simply ruled that because the due process clause does not secure any substantive rights, it does not secure the right to an abortion. Exactly right. So there's no substantive due process in the Constitution. And now we have the Due Process Clause twice in the Constitution, right? We have it twice. Uh, once in the Fifth Amendment and once in the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and the Due Process Clause is difficult because most people don't really understand what that term due process means. And so Watkins is going to give you a little lesson on this. He says the Due Process Clause at issue is found in the Fourteenth Amendment. provides that no state shall deprive any person of his life liberty or property without due process of law. So no state, right? So the, the Fifth Amendment issue is the federal government. The Fourteenth Amendment then is the state governments. This is, this is important how you make that distinction, how you split these two things out. The idea of due process dates back to Chapter 39 of the Magna Carta, which averts, no freeman shall be taken, imprisoned, dispossessed, outlawed, banished, or in any way destroyed, nor will we proceed against or prosecute him except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. By the end of the 14th century, Englishmen viewed due process of law and law of the land as interchangeable phrases. By around the 15th century, due process meant that before the government could punish a person for some act or omission, use of the courts and established procedures under pre-existing laws was necessary. Alexander Hamilton was clear about the scope of due process when writing in the late 1780s. Quote, the words due process have a precise technical import and are only applicable to the process and proceedings of courts of justice. They can never be referred to an act of the legislature, end quote. So in other words, this is a technical procedure. You have to be brought before the courts before you can be denied your life, liberty, or property. Right? That's it. You have to have the due process of the law. Proceedings of the courts of justice. You have to have due process of law, of the law of the land, right? 
And so that's what it meant here. Not not uh, that you, you we can't infringe on your rights before, but we can't we can't uh, say that we can take your property. You they can. The state can take your property as long as you follow the proper procedures before a court. Now, substantive process would say that this is something entirely different. Rights exist before you would go to a court. Uh, so this is where you have the the issue of say uh, you know Dred Scott, where uh, the court ruled in that particular case, which was a Fifth Amendment issue at the time, that the general government could not deny the slave owners the ability to take their slaves into territory because it violated the due process clause. Right? It violated the ability of slave owners to bring their property somewhere without the proper procedures. I mean, you can say that, well, this is, you could say this, well, I mean, there's no proper procedures. Not, they're, they're being denied their property without the proper procedures of the law. This is where a substitute process comes into play. And some due process refers primarily to judicial steps and procedures when a citizen is charged by government with some wrong. You have to be charged with a wrong before you can be denied your property. As power gravitated to the national government after the war between the states, the federal courts assumed a more aggressive role in American society. The Supreme Court latched onto the idea of substantive due process when reviewing state laws enacted to protect workers from the unpleasant side effects of the Industrial Revolution. Corporate lawyers attempting to free their clients from state restrictions argue that laws circumscribing business operations deprive corporations of due process because the laws were arbitrary. The classic judicial statement accepting substantive process is Lochner v. New York. Lochner dealt with a New York statute prohibiting bankers from working more than 60 hours per week and or 10 hours per day. The state argued that the statute was a simple exercise of the police power that reserved power to pass general legislation for the health, safety, and welfare of the people. So the state of New York said that we can prohibit, uh, prohibit or we can set up these working hours, right? No more than 60 hours per week and 10 hours a day. The High Court, however, held that the statute deprived bankers of liberty without due process of law inasmuch as the right to freely contract was a fundamental right protected by the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court said, in response, that you can't do this. In essence, it invalidated the state law that was protecting workers because it violated corporations' right to due process because it was arbitrary. You see... So it's knocking down a state law that would protect workers. This is a federal, this is not really a national issue. This was a state issue. Regulating workers is a state issue, not a federal issue, right? But in this case, the Supreme Court says, well, this state law is unconstitutional because it's arbitrary. It's setting an arbitrary amount, 60 hours, 10 hours a day. Using substantive due process, the court continued to carefully scrutinize economic legislation in the 1930s. The court got out of the business of protecting liberty of contract when the aggressive review of New Deal legislation prompted Franklin Delano Roosevelt to concord a court-packing plan. Thereafter, the court retreated from substantive due process and economic legislation, but it held on to the magic wand for individual liberties litigation. For example, in Griswold v. Connecticut, the court struck down an ancient state statute that prohibited access to contraceptives. Although different justices located a right to privacy in various parts of the Constitution, shadow zones from the Bill of Rights the Ninth Amendment and the Due Process Clause, the court ultimately agreed that certain unenumerated rights are so fundamental that they cannot be transgressed by government. 
and dissent. Just Hugo Black, just as Hugo Black rebuked the majority with plain words of wisdom. Now, this is funny because Hugo Black, of course, is a firm proponent of incorporation and uh, using the 14th Amendment to advance his agenda. But here he is actually in a, um, in a little bit of you know uh, an epiphany that he had the right side on things. I do not believe that we are granted power by the Due Process Clause or any other constitutional provision or provisions to measure constitutionality by our belief that legislation is arbitrary, capricious, or unreasonable, or accomplishes no justifiable purpose, or is offensive to our own notions of civilized standards of conduct. Such an appraisal of the wisdom of legislation is an attribute of the power to make laws, not the power to interpret them. So he's saying we have a problem here that we're interpreting, we're, we're legislating, we're not interpreting, we're actually making laws. Wow, Hugo Black actually said something amazing. Of course, in how, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, I get into how Hugo Black was really was a, a disaster, ultimately. Lawmaking power, this is Watkins again. Lawmaking power is heady stuff that can only be checked by frequent elections. Because federal judges are not accountable at the ballot box, they have become hapless addicts with an unlimited supply of hubris. Thus, when the due process clause, with the due process clause in tow, we are given fundamental right to an abortion in Roe, to homosexual activity in Lawrence, and a gay marriage in Augerfell. Progressives fear Justice Thomas's assault on substantive due process because without this judge-created doctrine, they would need to persuade fellow citizens and win elections to advance their agenda. It's much easier to convince five lawyers belonging to the cultural elite that a liberal nostrum is fundamental than it is to convince middle Americans that immoral behavior is key to ordered liberty. This is a great paragraph because this is true. Progressives would need to win at the ballot box, and they really can't do it. Right? They can in certain places, but even in California, Californians rejected affirmative action. Outright put a constitutional amendment because they didn't believe in it. And so leftists really can't win at the ballot box. Now, we know we've seen in Kansas here recently that Kansas actually upheld the portion of the state constitution which allowed for abortion. So it doesn't mean they can't. I mean, they, they can't win in red states, but they have a harder time doing it. Uh, and I mean, this is, but this is returning this back to the public at large and not letting the court. It's exactly what the Dobbs decision did. We're not going to lit litigate on this anymore. We're not going to legislate from the bench. The state's got to do it, right? Just turn it over to the states and the states can do what they want. It's amazing. When people woke up after the Dobbs decision in California, nothing had changed for them. Same thing in Massachusetts, same thing in New York, same thing in Florida. Nothing had changed. Not one thing had changed. And all these people are out protesting, nothing. Now, some states it did change, but many states it didn't. Watkins says, unfortunately, it is doubtful that other members of the court, liberal or conservative, are willing to admit that process is about procedure and not the creation of substantive rights ex nihilo. The majority in Dobbs went to great pains to distinguish Roe from other substantive process cases and seemed to have little stomach for pushing the matter further. That's the takeaway, and that is true. I don't think that Thomas is going to win the day on this because I'm not so certain the courts, the, the, judge, the justices on the Supreme Court, the conservative ones, are willing to take this step. They don't want to face death threats and uh, the violence that's going to come their way from the left. Remember, I've said on this podcast before, the most violent group in the history of the West are leftists. And you have to be careful of that. You have to be aware of it. Now, that violence will force people into action. He brings up FDR threatening to pass. This threats. I mean, think about it. The left threatens all the time. They threaten 
This is this is cancer culture. They threaten to take your job, take your money, take your take your reputation, take your life, abuse you physically. They threaten to do all these things because they know threats are going to force people to back down, and they know that they're they're covered. They have cover on all this because uh, the the leftist agenda is seen as morally correct. Right? This is morally correct, supposedly. They're they're given cover for it. Whereas conservatives, if they do that, well, I mean, they're raked over the coals. Last paragraph. Justice Thomas's concurrence, however, has grabbed attention and sparked a conversation. Are we better off with a catch-all due process clause by which judges can constitutionalize their pet causes? Or is the old-fashioned, already written constitution to be preferred? Time will tell. The old-fashioned, already written constitution. Is that one to be preferred? Or is this new unwritten constitution created by crafted by court decisions which is the common law process right is that to be used or is the written constitution now again this comes down to the idea of written constitutions written constitutions were there and it's an it's a purely american thing written constitutions are there to constrain the government you can only do these things when it talking about the federal government the state governments had unlimited powers. This is how James Wilson of Pennsylvania argued in the State House Yard speech. It's how everybody else argued it during the ratification process. The states could do what they want uh, as long as they weren't denied it by their own constitution, right? But the federal constitution could only do the things in the constitution itself. They couldn't do anything else. It was a different way of looking at it. What, what the left has done essentially is taken the state model and, and positioned it on the U.S. Constitution. Now, that comes out of uh, this implied power doctrine, but really gained steam in the 1860s, as, as Watkins points out, after the Civil War, after the war between the states. That's when it really gained steam. The war for Southern independence is the proper term for it. Uh, and it's, it did so because of the radical Republicans, who, by the way, you know, Abraham Lincoln wasn't a radical, but Abraham Lincoln sure did speak like them at times, particularly when it came to the Constitution. And this is the guy, and I'll talk about this next week, setting it up. This is the guy that the Claremonters want to say is the person we should follow when it comes to understanding the general government. This is the sad part about their entire position. If they just would drop that nonsense and just say, look, Lincoln is not the guy. We just need to get rid of Lincoln. Lincoln is the guy for the other side. Maybe we could go from there. But this is the point. They won't do it because of Jaffa and Jaffa was so incorrect about this. Uh, it's just laughable. Anyways, hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.